This is an HMP Governance Lab podcast on the American legislative process. I'm Scott Greer, and here to guide us through that exciting topic is Holly Jarman. Thanks for that great introduction. Um, so I get to give you the relatively vanilla version of the legislative process as experienced by the US Congress. So bear in mind that there's a, some variation um, in terms of how state legislatures go through this process, but um, the general process kind of holds. And uh, in particular, you need to know about the five different stages uh, that legislation is required to pass through, and it passes through those stages in each of the chambers before it becomes law. And so the five stages are introduction, so the point at which a bill is introduced, the committee stage, floor debate, the conference committee process, and approval. So for each state's stage, there are certain key points to consider, and I'm going to talk to you about those stage by stage. So at the introduction stage, most legislation starts with somewhat similar proposals that get introduced in both chambers. So note that the US Congress is a bit weird in that individual members of Congress can introduce legislation. This is pretty unusual amongst legislatures worldwide. Uh, I have the dubious honor of actually having a degree in legislative studies. Um, and so one of the things that we, we had to read was um, an analysis of different legislatures and this kind of active legislature where individual members can put forward their own laws is really rare. And it's pretty much just the US and Costa Rica that have this model. Um, so the consequence of that for our purposes is that it means the centralized agenda control um, by the party leadership in each chamber is actually a bit weaker than it might be in other places. So in, in some countries, governments really do shape the agenda very directly. Um, but in the US case, individual members can throw a curveball by introducing their own legislation, which they like to do for various reasons, including signaling to their constituents that they've done something uh, about a perceived problem. It doesn't necessarily mean that the legislation is good or will be effective. Um, it, it's sometimes used as a signaling device in that way. Um, so it does matter who is in charge of uh, the chamber, uh, obviously their party preferences and uh, um, ideology matter, but also how senior are they and how well do they know the process and can they actually bend the rules of the chamber to their advantage? Um, and can they build coalitions of support for a piece of legislation in order to um, facilitate its passage through the chamber? So let me use as an example one of my all-time favorite pieces of American legislation or legislative proposals, which is the Indiana Pie Bill of 1897, in which a representative named Tyler Record introduced a bill on how the circle should be squared, which implied a value of pi is 3.2. Now, as Holly said, anybody can introduce a bill and have it be listed in the legislative record as having been introduced and thus was introduced a bill in which the Indiana legislature would have established by legislative fiat a mathematical formula with a variety of implications, including pi is 3.2. What happened next? <laughs> so I think in most circumstances that pi bill would die in the next stage, which is the committee stage. So... Um, most bills do not pass the committee stage. Please note that 
there are a lot of um, representatives introducing measures just to introduce measures. They might well realise this is not going to pass the committee stage and so they might want to signal in various ways that nevertheless they're doing something about it. But um, again, committees are political and partisan. So um, what can advance as a piece of legislation out of committee stage to the floor debate is a partisan matter. Uh, and so a lot of bills go to die in the relevant committee. So internal rules within the chamber determine which committee examines the bill. Um, so a series of standing committees can gather information so they can hold hearings, basically. So where you see experts standing up and testifying, um, that's a hearing where ostensibly uh, the uh, committee members are gathering information about the topic, although quite often hearings themselves are also performative. Um, the standing committee can also draft legislation, which is called the markup process. Um, and then they can make some recommendations. So they can recommend passage of a bill in which case it will move on to the next stage, or they can just choose not to do anything and not acting effectively kills the bill. So most bills don't get past this stage. It's worth noting also that um, over time in the legislature, as um, legislators have dealt with more complex policy topics, um, committee staff numbers have really increased and have seen a higher workload, although in very recent years we've had a lot of gridlock and not actually a lot of legislation passing through Congress. So those co committee members don't necessarily have a lot to do right now. Or if they do, they're doing oversight hearings. Mm -hmm. Now, you'll be amazed to hear that the Pi Bill made it into committee stage, and in fact out of committee stage. What? There was confusion after it was introduced. A senator from Bloomington proposed that it be referred to the Finance Committee. The Speaker accepted another member's recommendation that it should go to the Committee on Swamplands where the bill could, quote, find a deserved grave. <laughs> In reality, it, the bill was actually transferred to the Committee on Education, which, reflecting, I guess, lower standards for staff work in 1897 in Indiana, reported it out favorably. Wow. So it's out of the committee stage. Now what happens? Stage three. Okay. So stage three is the floor debate. So the word debate is a bit misleading here. Uh, the way that the debate proceeds in discussion of the bill is kind of the result of negotiation amongst members. Um, and it's the process is guided by party leadership and the whips. So who gets to speak and when? And the points raised are somewhat politically constructed and partisan, obviously. Um, so votes can happen at this stage. And those votes are governed by a mix of formal and informal rules, which we will, we will talk about in a minute. So once the pie bill has been debated, did it, did it go any further, Scott? Well, one thing I want to suggest is that complex legislation such as modern health legislation, the pie bill probably would have ended up in all three. And so conceivably, you could have had the floor looking at three marked up versions from the committees on swampland, finance, and education. So in that case, it's in the hands of the leadership and the rules committee in the House to figure out how they would get these to work together. So for example, the ACA the three principal committees that would have considered it in the House worked together to get a single legislative draft for the House to put onto the floor. Now, in the case of the Pie Bill, the committee reported it out favorably. Um, I'm starting to get a real vibe about the educational equality of uh, Indiana in 1897. Mm -hmm. 
But as luck would have it, the president of the Indiana Academy of Sciences, a mathematician from Purdue, happened to be in town because he was lobbying the budget committee for an appropriation for the Indiana Academy of Sciences. And he was available to explain to members that no matter what you legislate, pi is not going to be 3.2. So it actually died in a floor debate after being favorably reported out of the committee stage. But here's the hypothetical. What if the Indiana Assembly had indeed passed it, and the Indiana Senate had simultaneously passed a hypothetical bill to make pi 4? Well, in that case, Scott, we would proceed to the next stage, um, which is the conference committee stage. So at that point, there has to be a mechanism for reconciling these bills. We have to figure out what version of this law that's been passed through the the two chambers is actually going to be the law on the books. And so this involves more committees, you'll be surprised to hear. So uh, conference committees, again, this is a negotiated process. And so uh, they negotiate um, and and try and figure out what the consolidated bill will be. Um, And so that happens when chambers approve different versions of the same bill. And the important thing about this stage is it's actually not very transparent at all. Um, If you think about it as a member of the public, you can get to see when a bill is introduced. Um, Maybe you know something about the committee stage because you have been following the hearings. Um, You can also take a look at floor debate and the transcripts. Uh, The the conference committee stage is relatively um, less transparent. And so it can be a tricky one for advocates and um, lobbyists to really navigate. And this gives us one of the most important weird pieces of legislation in American healthcare, ERISA. Now, ERISA was a piece of legislation to deal with the fallout from the bankruptcy of the Studebaker Corporation. It's Indiana Day in this class. Studebaker was in Indiana. And they went bust and they made all sorts of promises of insurance and pensions to their employees. And then when they went bankrupt, They just reneged and the employees got nothing. And people who were receiving Studebaker pensions suddenly got no pension. This was perceived as a problem. And so Congress set out to formalize the meaning of a company pension obligation. So if you have an employer that actually offers people a fixed benefit, defined benefit pension, well, they're within a federal regulatory framework because Studebaker had shown that state regulatory frameworks weren't enough. Late at night... About three o'clock in the morning, somebody in the conference committee, and historians are actually still trying to figure out who that was, said, wait a minute, this might cause real complexity for companies' health insurance. And so ERISA, which is mostly about pensions and not your problem, acquired one little line which said that company health insurance plans for multi-state companies are exempt from state insurance regulation. So... State insurance regulators basically can't insure the health bans and benefits, uh, can't regulate the health insurance plans and benefits and procedures of the biggest companies. That happened in conference committee. It's amazing. We still don't know who put it in. Uh, When it went back for approval, it didn't get any further oversight, and it changed the direction of American health policy because it meant that small employers and people are regulated by states, but the big companies are regulated by the federal government exclusively. So I hope you can see by that example how this relatively overlooked part of the legislative process, relatively um, 
not very transparent at all, really, uh, can have a huge effect on the outcome. Uh, and especially it, when you're dealing with laws and legislation, um, my advice is to always read the bill. Don't rely on other people's interpretation of the bill. Read the bill for yourself. Learn how to be, read a piece of legislation and um, understand it in context for yourself. Don't rely on other people's interpretation of the law. Um, because small things like this, like that phrase that was inserted, um, might have in incredibly uh, big implications for you, your organization, or the issues that you care about. So we move on to the approval stage. So this is the part where the House and Senate, uh, the, co the conference committee produces a, a compromise text, uh, and the House and Senate approve that text. Then the bill goes off to the president. So this is the part where the public pay more attention because uh, the president can either sign the bill into law or can exercise the veto power and kick it out. And if the president exercises the veto power, it takes a two-thirds majority in both houses to override. Mm -hmm. I also want to underline that once something has come back from the conference committee, whose members are appointed by the leaderships of the two houses, so it's highly partisan, it's an up or down vote. You don't get to amend again. Your last shot at amending as an ordinary member was in the floor debate ages ago. Prior to the conference committee stage, and that's important. And at the approval stage, the U.S. Senate has the filibuster, which was born of a mistake in the rules. When Aaron Burr, uh, who has been better known these days than for a long time, tried to clean up the Senate rules and accidentally created a glitch in which it appeared to require unanimous consent to end debate and call a question. So a filibuster simply means that you decline to end the debate and actually vote. So what it means is that the Senate passes everything by majority, 50 votes plus one most of the time. But ending the debate requires a supermajority, which is currently fixed in the rules at 60. These Senate rules are endlessly fascinating because they're really important. It takes 11% of the population to elect 60 senators, which means that you can have grotesque disparities within the Senate in favor of essentially thinly populated rural states. Senate rules are set by a majority of 50. So you can abolish the filibuster with 50 or 51 votes, but if you keep the filibuster, you have to have 60 votes in order to actually vote on any legislative proposal. The filibuster has been being used more and more in the 21st century. It used to be used in extremists. Now, essentially, no legislation moves forward in the Senate. Nobody even bothers unless they're assured of 60-plus votes, which is a principal reason that the Senate does essentially nothing. The one thing that the Senate does care about is approving judges, so they basically move to a 50-vote rule. So the Senate has eased its rules for certain budget things, see our discussion of reconciliation, and for federal judicial appointments. For everything else, the Senate re retains a 60-vote gridlock, which is bizarrely held in place by a 50-vote decision on the rules. I think it's important to note that you say the Senate does nothing. The senators, although the Senate as an institution is not doing a lot of legislation, the senators are doing a lot with their time that relates to party um, priorities and um, also the election. So they're raising money and uh, meeting with stakeholders and doing other things with their time, um, which is important to note. 
but even the most constructive senators, you look at the scores that senators get. For example, Gary Peters of Michigan has one of the highest bipartisan success scores of any senator, and it's still really depressingly low by historical standards, because bipartisan success requires finding something that in the polarized America of the 21st century will find 60 votes. And the fact that Peters finds anything is to his credit. Right. So that's the basic vanilla legislative process. But I think, like as, as Scott was sort of alluding to there, there's a number of things we have to think about that actually intervene to shape this process. Particularly, I'm thinking here about the rules of both of the chambers, for example. So the chambers are quite different in culture. The House is defined by the phrase, go along to get along. House members are encouraged to specialize onto one or two committees. They fundraise from the people who come before those committees, and they use that to buy their committee posts. It's a pay-to-play system. You raise a certain amount of money for the party leadership, and they reward you with a post on a good committee. So really heavily lobbied committees, like to do with finance, ways and means, defense, they have to put in maybe a good half million dollars a year sometimes in donations into the party leadership's control to help their fellow members. And as in return, they get to make policy affecting those districts, or sorry, those areas of policy. If this sounds like legalized corruption to you, you probably have a point. Now, what this means though, is that house members stay in their lanes. If you're on the agriculture committee, you do agriculture. If you're on a, the aging subcommittee of the committee that deals with health, you focus on that. That's your lane, that's your donors, that's your expertise, and that's your support base. The House is traditionally run by the leadership, right? So the leadership responds to the caucus, the caucus responds to the leadership. Nancy Pelosi is essentially the prime minister of House Democrats in this model. That's what the speaker does. Being in the minority in the House just stinks. You get to have a rude website, paid for, but you get a small number of staffers, but basically the leadership systematically and consistently overrides you and you just need to lump it. So whenever a party thinks that they're going to be out of power in the house for a good while, you see a bunch of senior people retire because it's really no fun at all to be in the minority. The Senate is very different. It's much smaller. Senators cover a much bigger waterfront. If you look at a big piece of legislation, you can see the fingerprints of most of the ruling party senators on it. However, the Senate's become far more gridlocked and far more partisan, far less collegial, because increasingly senators, like House members, vote the party line and the leadership has seized control of the process. This is particularly extreme in sort of late Obama and the Trump presidency when there's very little big legislation going through, and a lot of actually what goes through is in the form of budget bills, which have to be passed. And so people stick their policy priorities not in law where it belongs and where it can be properly seen in committee and examined and marked up, but instead it gets mashed into an enormous bill by the leadership, which gets passed often sight unseen by House members and senators alike. This is what I mean when I say that American politics is increasingly a legislature-free zone, because it looks more and more like something you've seen in a lot of states. New York State was famous for this in which the houses essentially are under control of their partisan leaderships. They negotiate with the executive, the White House. That's what gets passed, and most of the time what gets passed is in the form of a budget bill, even if I would prefer that it be properly thought through legislation. 
So what you're saying is that we should call this something other than a legislature at this point. <sighs> Combination of administrative oversight on a good day and budgeting. And this is extraordinarily frustrating, right? Nobody's happy with this. Nobody enjoys this. The few people who do enjoy it are mostly really strange and unpleasant human beings, right? You don't go to Washington under any party label because this is what you want to be doing, being ordered around by the leadership, being constantly forced to raise money. If you're in the House minority, you have nothing to do. If you're in the House majority, you basically have an area of expertise, but you have to do what you're told most of the time. And if you're in the Senate, your world is looking increasingly like the House, but with an incredibly frustrating supermajority requirement for everything but judges and budgets. That's not a lot of fun. So can I ask at this point, what do you think we should do about this? I mean, we've got some exciting young legislators. Uh, we've got OC, we've got Rashida Tlaib, um, and others who might be able to shake this up and might be willing to shake this up. How can the legislative process be reformed in, in a way that would support public health? This varies, but for a while the Democrats have actually been the older party in terms of the average age of their representatives. On one hand, you have the squad. On the other hand, you have a bunch of you know bright young Republicans, right? Dan Crenshaw, for example. And they are every bit as heroes on the Republican side as the squad are heroes for many Democrats. And, of course, Wolfsbane to many moderate Democrats who get hit with tack ads featuring the squad on a regular basis. There's a bunch of procedural things you can do, but here's the problem. Political scientists like political parties. We like political parties because it increases accountability and voter information. That little D or that little R tells the voters a lot. We like political parties because it encourages coordination. We like political parties because it allows more complex deals that satisfy more interests. So the House, in many ways, is a perfectly functional European legislature. The Senate is a moderately functional European legislature. The problem is they operate within a system of checks and balances that is dependent on comparatively weak parties and lots of side deals and lots of, if you vote for my policy, I'll vote to build you a bridge. And that's what's gone due to partisanship which is connected with the amount of money flowing into the system and the advantage that it gives leadership over the other parts of the legislative bodies. Yeah, so in political science, we often refer to this phenomenon as hyperpartisanship, even um, because of its, uh, well, lack of desirability, but also uh, the damage it does. Um, and it's quite distinct from what anybody around the, the founding of these political institutions thought might happen. Um, these, the institutions that we have aren't really designed for conditions of hyper-partisanship. And so they start to break down and, and become dysfunctional. I would point out that the next time you have a party that is attempting to legislate and has between 50 and 60 Senate votes, the filibuster is gone. That would be an interesting development. Now... This is probably quite depressing, and I realize that's my role in this life. <laughs> but let's rattle through a basic what you need to know to end. So let, let's do the kind of guiding posts. So first of all, where do these rules come from? When people talk about the Senate rules, or the House rules, or the rules of the game, the norms, where do they come from? Yeah, so... Um... I want to say one more time that uh, the operation of both of these chambers is is somewhat flexible and the person in charge can uh, take advantage of the rules to try and get the result that they want. 
And uh, each chamber, as Scott said, has its own culture and sets its own rules. So where do the rules come from? Uh, obviously, some of this is in the Constitution. Um, but there are also formal rules, which are uh, the standing rules of operation, which govern procedure in both chambers. But then there's a bunch of informal rules. Here's the invisible stuff that as a new legislator, you might not really know. Um, and so those informal rules are based on precedent or custom. Um, so you can actually go and take a look for each chamber. They have basically a PDF of what the rules for that chamber are, the formal rules. But then there'll be a bunch of custom on top of that, um, which sort of governs... Um, how the different uh, parties behave, how leadership uh, relates to its members uh, and how uh, things proceed in terms of the legislative process. And the interesting thing to see is how congressional culture may change over time uh, as a result of that. There are also statutory rules, which are, as you would expect from statute, a piece of primary legislation um, that govern the process. And in particular, if you listen to our budgeting podcast you'll hear um, our discussion of the bird rule which was uh, in a piece of legislation that governs the way that budgets uh, can be voted upon and then um, the party rules so parties have their own rules for how things are supposed to go in congress uh, and in particular scott's alluded a little bit to some of the rules and informal understandings around party financing and committee allocation so these rules determine a bunch of important things and so we when we say legislative process people assume that there is a process it's in the constitution and this is how it goes and what we're really saying here in this podcast is no there's actually a lot of flexibility and change there over time um, so these rules determine voting so how do you vote when do you vote and also like what a vote's outcome really means uh, what are the consequences of the vote? They The rules determine who drives the agenda and how much time is allocated to discussing a particular bill, which is time is incredibly important in, in Congress, because if you get time, you have priority on the agenda. Um, these rules determine, as we've said, which committees consider legislation. They also determine what information the public receives about this process, which is very important. Um, component of transparency and democracy um, they determine who can access the decision-making process so who can actually consult with members of congress and how does that work uh, and to what extent does congress have to communicate to the public what it is doing um, these rules also determine determine seniority of members so um how well do you how high up do you rank within your party and within congress and then also as we've said things like fundraising requirements for each party rank one of the things that is really important to note is that we're in an era of what we call constitutional hardball in which things that are formally constitutional but are against the norms are happening more and more often so for example amy coney barrett who was appointed by Trump and heard by the Senate in essentially the last month before the election of 2020, the Democrats didn't turn up at the Judiciary Committee meeting vote that pushed her out onto the floor. They just didn't come. So the committee was in quarrel. But for a variety of reasons, loosely nobody made a quorum call. 
So the committee did something that is against the Senate rules, but Senate rules are not self-enforcing, and the Republicans wanted to have the vote on Coney Barrett, so they did. Who's right? Who's wrong? Are the quorum rules good? Are the quorum call rules good? I honestly have no idea. Senate rules are intricate beyond belief. But the key thing is that the Senate used to run on a norm of deference to other senators, particularly with regard to judicial appointments, and that's gone. That's constitutional hardball. Passing Coney Barrett's out of the committee without any Democratic supporter vote or quorum is certainly something that you can do under the Constitution. It's against Senate rules, but in a sense, if nobody calls you on it, then what's the problem? And that's, that's the thing about authority here is that um, the procedures of the chambers are based, you know, they, they are their own watchdogs, essentially. So in some circumstances, you can appeal to the Senate parliamentarian about the rules, but um, it's very easy to remove the Senate parliamentarian and install another one, uh, somebody who maybe more uh, like is more likely to agree with you. And so... Um, the the problem here arises because the uh, Congress is essentially self-governing. Self-governing, but increasingly trapped in this American vortex of structurally weak parties and very, very high levels of partisanship. So what are some other trends? So, yeah, as we said, this increased partisanship, sometimes referred to by us in political science as hyper-partisanship, is, is an incredible problem that's been um, increasing over time. And we've also seen uh, distinct factions within parties. So the Tea Party would be considered one. So Tea Party affiliation was a big deal. Um, and then on the, the left, the Blue Dog Democrats, who uh, see, saw themselves as very much centrists and in some ways closer to the Republican Party. Um, so that's been on the increase in recent years. Increased incumbency. So um, members of Congress uh, stick around for longer and incumbents have certain advantages that make it much more likely that they're actually going to stay in Congress uh, rather than be ousted by somebody else. Uh, and that's a huge problem if you think about um, the uh, responsiveness of Congress to elections and to uh, the outcomes of elections. Um, there's a lot of concerns about the media environment, which we will, we I'm sure, talk about in a lot of different episodes of this podcast. Um, but in terms of how the media react to Congress, cover Congress, understand the legislative process, this is a big problem um, to the extent that the media do not have full-time journalists who are experts in legislative procedures and can understand the implications of what's going on. Um, the, you know, the breakdown of uh, the traditional press and the diversification of media, but also the corporatization of some forms of media. That's a big problem for understanding the legislative process and the implications of partisanship within the two chambers. And this is worse in the States, where it used to be that there would be dozens of correspondents in a state capital from diverse media outlets. And now Michigan, 10 million people, has correspondents in Lansing that hover around five. The Free Press, the Detroit News... Michigan Radio, and Lansing local outlets. All of these factors are um, meaning that we're, we're seeing less good scrutiny within Congress, but also less good scrutiny of Congress. Um, uh, overall, we've mentioned the huge pressure to raise funds. 
um, elections are not getting any cheaper. Um, the current cycle, I'm sure, once we we see the final reports, will be a very expensive election. Um, it's not surprising that elections get more um, expensive as um, they get more contested. So uh, people feel obligated and and motivated to give their money um we've also seen new ways of fu- raising funds through the internet and and more uh diverse donors as well as um different patterns of consolidation around big donors in certain cases and so who's funding congress is the matter for another podcast but um in general there's a big uh, and increasing pressure on each member to raise money so this isn't a very cheery take And to be honest, America's legislatures are not very cheery places right now. Enormous fundraising demands, poor coverage from high-quality media, poor coverage period if you're a state, enormous unhelpful media coverage if you're on the hot seat in Washington, and the result is broadly gridlocked institutions in an increasingly partisan environment and legislatures that do less and less actual legislating. And in the Trump administration, less and less ability even to do oversight because the administration would frequently just ignore committees that asked for basic records and testimonials. So insofar as there's a political crisis in the United States, one dimension of it is that executive legislative relationships are badly broken. And if you look at what happens to countries with that problem around the world, it's generally not pretty. But I think that this is the one way to deal with this is to think about um, the pipeline for representatives to think about state and local government where maybe some more legislative change is possible even if it's not possible in the US Congress um, and to focus on holding these institutions to account um, and you know the one thing that is a constant is that members are do have to be responsive to some extent to their voters and so a focus on how elections are constructed Uh, and information around elections and issues, how state and local government feeds into a system of um, representatives at the the federal level um, can be some ways to try to address this. And this is a system with so many ways you can get into it, so many ways you can have influence. It's easy to caricature it that it's all just for donors or something. But if you actually bring expertise and bring knowledge and claim you speak for somebody credibly, they're going to want to hear from you. Because go back to what I said, nobody really likes a world in which it's all about fundraising and yelling on Fox News. There's a lot of appetite to actually make good policy. And when there's an opportunity to make good policy, as the Agenda Setting Podcast reminded you, you have to move fast and you have to be ready. So being prepared, being engaged, and being ready to make your argument and knowing who to make your argument to are, if anything, more valuable at a time when there's so much gridlock and immobility. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. If you're interested in our research, come and find us at hmpgovernancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMPGovLab. 